Good morning, good morning. Welcome to Faith Church. Glad you're here. If you're just joining us online, uh, welcome. If maybe it's your first time in the house, uh, my name's Matthew, one of the pastors here. This is Pastor Clayton. He is our operations pastor here at the church. Can you welcome Pastor Clayton to the stage? Yes, yes, yes. Good morning, everyone. He is starving for affection and adoration, yes, so yes, starving. just needs all that. Uh, no, it's great. It's great to have you. Uh, we're going to do a little something different today. Uh, this isn't normal, our, our normal setup on a Sunday, uh, but we want to have the beginning part of a conversation uh, as a family, as a, as a church, as a people, uh, and enter into the waters of some conversations that are happening in our culture. But we want to wade into them both theologically first and also pastorally in a practical way, helping you navigate, you, talk, you have conversations. Now, today's subject, we are not going to exhaust. It's merely an introduction and even though towards the end we're going to have some Q&A, he's going to ask some questions and I'm going to squirm my way through answering them in a PG way as best we can. Uh, want to do our best to really begin a conversation and at the this week in our email we're going to resource you with lots of things. We, we recognize that um, we may raise more questions today for you than we may answer but that's why it's the beginning of a conversation, not the final word on a conversation. And we really do want to have a bit more of a, a casual approach to this subject as um, we kind of warmly and compassionately and kindly talk about Jesus' view on sex, on sexuality, on gender, about family a little bit, and what is the Christian sexual ethic. And kind of wade into some conversations today. Uh, we've been talking about the King Jesus gospel as a family for the last several, several uh, weeks and months going through the gospel of Matthew. And Jesus taught and lived a certain way, showing us many things, teaching us many things on how we should move forward in our life and in faith. And so we, we want to hold to those. We want to see those. And we want to, with great uh, understanding and compassion and truth submit our vantage point, our viewpoints to his and allow him to reign above even those areas in our lives. And so that's what we're doing. We're going to get into the scripture. Pastor Clayton's going to read today's text found in Matthew 19 verses 1 through 12. So Matthew 19, ready? Ready. All right, here we go. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went down to the region of Judea, east of the Jordan River. Large crowd followed him there, and he healed their sick. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? Haven't you read the scriptures, Jesus replied? They record that from, they record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said... This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united as one. Since they're no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Well, then why did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away? They asked. Jesus replied, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts, but it was not what God had originally intended. And I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries somebody else commits adultery, unless his wife has been unfaithful. Jesus' disciple then said to him, well, if this is the case, it's better not to marry. 
Not everyone can accept this statement, Jesus said. Only those whom God helps. Some are born as eunuchs. Some have been made eunuchs by others. And some choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can. So Jesus affirms some things in this text that are really important. He talks about some key truths and subjects as it relates to marriage, to sex, to gender, divorce, and this Christian sexual ethic. And we want to explore some of these. One of the things that I think is interesting is that when Jesus was posed a question, he goes all the way back to the text of Genesis. He goes back to the scriptures. See, in Jesus's day, they had something called the Septuagint. Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Old Testament that was originally written in Hebrew. Now, they still had the the Hebrew text, but when Jesus quotes it, he quotes it in the local form of Greek, and he's quoting directly from some scriptures, and I think it's really important, and that's part of my goal today, is to help you think through questions in our culture, help you think through questions in life, first and foremost, theologically correctly. Then from a correct theological understanding, we want to then make personal application in a practical way, and as a pastor, I want to help you grow in your own faith in following Jesus. That's what I want to do. That's my goal today. Is not to, my goal is to not sound like some great authority. I am a local church pastor. I love people, and I want to help people from all walks of life see Jesus for who he is and understanding the loving redemption and reconciliation that he longs to provide for us all. And Often when we approach these subjects, there are kind of two ditches on either side. As with every truth, for every mile of truth, you've heard me say it, there are two miles of ditch. And on one ditch, we would just simply lower the truth and say, well, that's not really what, it, that's not really what Jesus said. That's not really what Jesus means. And, and we start to lower the standard of what he's doing. And then other side of things, and this is what's often happened in our world and in Christianity or, or through church people, and that's we take the truth from the sword of the spirit, from the sword of the word of God, and we turn it into this bullying, brash, snarky, I'm gonna use God's word to cut you down and silence you and not really have a conversation, but try to win an argument, and that's not helpful either. So we wanna come with a little bit of a different posture. We wanna come at this one, what does Jesus say? What does he invite us into? What did he model? And how can we practically, in a, in a really well-rounded pastoral sense, help you and how we as a family, how can we navigate this cultural moment that we live in? Let me make some observations, and then we're going to get into some questions, all right? Uh, and if you're already nervous, just, just wait. It gets better, I promise. You'll be more nervous at the end of the day, and like earmuffs, uh, it'll be okay. But we're going to try to wade into this a little bit, and, and I really do think it, it will help you. Let me make some observations from this text. First, you need to understand that Jesus affirms that God's design for marriage is between one man and one woman expressed in whole life covenant union. And, and really, any sexual activity outside of that union is not a part of God's design, not a part of his desire for our lives, and is damaging to those things. And it's damaging to the flourishing life 
of a follower of Jesus. Jesus wants to come, and in his gospel, he announced a new way to be human. He announced a new way to relate to God the Father. He, he announces a new way that we can walk in the Spirit and find strength and health. And from this connection and relationship with God, what was stolen in the Garden of Eden through sin's entrance... He wants to restore back to us and allow a flourishing to take place in every area of our life. And Jesus is presenting that to us, how to do that. And he, and he starts by saying marriage is this way. Now, next week, we're going to talk more explicitly and, and specifically about marriage, about family, and about the environment in the home. And we're even going to talk a little bit about how God designed the husband to operate in the home and how God designed the wife to operate in the home. And it will most likely upset your American Christian sensibilities, especially if you think there is one dominant person and the other is more weaker and must submit and adhere to everything said by said other dominant one going to upset that ideology for a little bit. We're going to talk about how God created man and woman equal but different for partnership. We're going to talk about what that looks like next week. So come back. It's going to be a lot more fun uh, and probably a little less. <laughs> I can't believe we're talking about this moments uh, for all of us. Trust me. But more on that next week. Jesus, though, does affirm that this is what marriage is, not defined any other way. Not designed any other way, not intended any other way, that this is the way of human flourishing in an intimate relationship. It's in this context and in this context alone. Here's another thing that Jesus affirms in this text, and that Jesus affirms the reality that there are two genders. Not three, not four, not seven, not eight, not what you woke up this morning thinking about. There are, there are two, male and female, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And I want to spend some time unpacking this just for a second because it's a very, very important subject. And when we lack understanding, we find ourselves outraged and disgusted and huffy and puffy as followers of Jesus, and that's not helpful. Because when we respond in outrage to something, we lose our ability to reach out to them. And ultimately, that is what God is after, is us being light ambassadors of the kingdom of God, representing his name in a way that helps others know him, find him, and follow him faithfully. And that's what we're after, and that's what we're, we want to do. But I, wanna, I want you to understand, in the Greek and in the Hebrew, both in Genesis and Jesus' words here in Matthew, Jesus' Greek and Hebrew word for Male and female are the biological, reproductive, physiological parts known as male and female. It is as much a statement as a, about biology and anatomy as it is about theology. Jesus affirms the creation account. You want to know what Jesus thought about how the world came about? Genesis 1, 2, and 3. That's how. That's how Jesus thought. That's what he reached back and quoted in this same way. And so it's really important that we understand that. In Genesis chapter 2, you can read this later for extra credit. 
Uh, nobody's going to follow up, and uh, you'll just feel, feel cool about yourself when you read it. But in Genesis 2, you see this creation account of man and woman, and God's looking around and says, hey, it's not good for man to be alone. There's no one here suitable to help or a suitable companion or a fit for him. This word fit is the Hebrew word konegdo. It appears twice here in the text in Genesis 2, and it means as opposite him or like against him. In other words, God created someone, another human that is like him, but different. Equal to, but unique. For partnership. In other words, Eve qualifies to be Adam's suitable helper fit for him because she is A, human. Animals couldn't be the perfect fit and help for him. And B, opposite of him in gender. That's what the scripture is articulating. This word connecto refers to her biology and his biology as different but similar. Different in that they are very much different. And similar in that they've performed functions to help a specific purpose. Different but similar. All of creation was created and then named based on physiological realities. Not emotional or psychological ones. That's why Adam goes and starts listing out these bars and is like, this is bone of my bone. Flesh of my flesh. He's like rapping and writing some poetry. It's like, oh, Adam, stop this. Right, like... Like, this is what he is doing. He is dropping some romantic bars, some lyrics along the way, helping her. He's like, this is from me. This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. It is seen. Listen, a red bird was called a red bird because physically it was very good. All of creation was named based on physical characteristics. God and Jesus, the Son of God himself, the Ancient of Days, the one from the beginning who is and was and is still to come, was articulating a very, very important truth as it relates to gender. Now, gender is a, a hot topic in our world, and so I want to give you some, some definitions of some words that you hear in our culture because I want you to have understanding. And hopefully in having understanding, you can be a little bit more kind and caring for people. Sound good? Let me give you some definitions um, for your listening enjoyment. Gender, this historically is a term that represents sex and gender. And it, those two terms often are interchangeable to talk on that biological level. There's something called gender identity. This refers to the ways individuals perceive themselves and even wish to name themselves. Uh, gender expression is another term you'll hear. This refers to the psychological and social aspects of how masculinity and femininity are presented in things like dress and demeanor, social roles and conventions, and other cultural gender norms. Um, the next term that is important is the word gender roles. This refers to the commonly expect, accepted expectations of maleness and femaleness, including social and behavioral expectations. Some of these roles really aren't meant to be pigeoned into one gender or the other, like cooking and cleaning and household things and budgeting. Those aren't necessarily intended to be gender 
sexual organs specific. They can. They don't have to be. And they really do transition from time to time, period to period, culture to culture, household to household. But there are some gender roles that aren't as flexible and biologically are determined. Things like pregnancy, breastfeeding, those are specific roles to a specific gender. You'll terms, uh, there are terms like gender bending. Gender bending, this refers to the intentional crossing or bending or blending of accepted gender norms in a given culture. This is done by either adopting dress, mannerisms, roles, or behaviors. It's the opposite gender, sometimes referred to as transvestitism, and through the attempt to obscure one's look or gender. Here's another term that's really important, and that's gender dysphoria. This is the latest diagnostic term. It's a diagnostic term for the distress experienced by those whose psychological or emotional gender identity differs from their biological sex or gender. It replaces a previous term, uh, which is gender identity disorder. It's kind of got an updated name called gender dysphoria. There's another term that's important, and it's the term intersex. This is a term that covers a range of disorders of sexual, uh, disorders of sex development in a body um, where there is some biological ambiguity in a person's genitalia or gonads or reproductive system, or more rarely still, even on the chromosome level. Except in very rare instances, a person's biological sex can really be known from DNA. Because intersex conditions are medically identifiable as deviations from the binary sex norms that are not regarded, it's not regarded as constituting a third sex. Simply saying that those who have experienced um, a gender uh, or, or, or intersex conditions, a development issue, that's simply saying it's a deviation from one of the original sexes. It doesn't constitute its own category of sex. So there are still two sexual genders, male and female. Last term that you'll hear is the word transgender. It's kind of an umbrella term um, for people who are born either male or female, but whose gender identity differs from their birth sex to varying degrees. It's not all the same. And sometimes people choose to express themselves into a different gender. Um, sometimes they identify through cross-dressing, sometimes through cross-sex hormone therapy, and if not also at times sex reassignment surgery. Now there's some data that's come out recently, and it'll be an article linked in this week's email. Again, this week we're sending an email out with lots of resources from where this where I've been doing some study, I've been doing some, I didn't just like cram this week for this. I've been studying and paying attention to this subject for many, many months. Reading, listening, studying, exploring scripture, listening to some cultural things, and just trying to disseminate some of the best resources we can to help you understand some of these subjects as well. We're going to send that out this week, but one of the studies that I've read recently says that those who go as far as to start with uh, cross-hormone therapy and sex reassignment surgery 
do not come out better psychologically. It does great damage, and there is a high rate of suicide on the other side of that, if I remember the study correctly. The problems they were trying to fix originally didn't actually get rectified in the measures that they were being pushed, told, or sold that it would. In other words, let me say it this way. There, is, there can be great damage done when you try to address a psychological issue and problem with a physiological change. That can be very damaging. This is what research and study is showing. When it comes to gender bending, this is a little bit of an area that I think falls a little bit more into an active misinterpretation or deception in their own life that, that does need a little bit of care, but yet still repentance to move forward. When people, there's an incongruence emotionally. What you feel, I'll be very, as kind as I can in saying this, what you feel is telling you the truth about something that you believe. It's just that what you believe might not be true. I'm going to share a little bit more on this in a little bit in one of my responses to a question, but I think it's really important for us to understand that. When it comes to gender dysphoria and intersex conditions, can I say this? Whether I can or not, I'm going to. Material. I believe it doesn't fall into an issue of personal sin, committed sin. I do believe it falls into what the Bible would refer to as afflictions. Something incongruent within them and or an intersex condition that they were born with. When Jesus comes against a blind man in John chapter 9... And the disciples asked, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents that he was born blind? Surely sin was involved that this affliction would be on him, is essentially the question that they're asking. And Jesus is like, you're missing the point. It's neither this man or his parents who sinned. But this is an opportunity for the kingdom of God to come in close and you to see God on full display in someone's life. And that was what Jesus was saying. It, it falls into the element of, you can do a Bible search on your own, for the keyword affliction in scripture. And you will see a numerous amount of scriptures on what it looks like, what it sounds like, what it feels like, and how God encourages us to respond in those places. Whether someone has been clinically diagnosed with gender dysphoria, whether they have been born with an intersex condition, or they are more in the element of gender, trying to find and define themselves gender roles or do their own gender bending, wherever they both require gentleness from the people of God. Compassion before we have a conversation around conviction. They get cared for long before we confront them. This is part of the posture that I think the people of God need to understand. Now, I do want to say this as it relates to gender dysphoria specifically. It's estimated that about 0.005% to 
0.014% of people assigned male at birth and 0.002% to 0.003% of people assigned female at birth are actually diagnosable with gender dysphoria. So a very small population. I think there's a little bit larger number of those who experience a birth intersex condition. That means the rest of those in this conversation fall into perhaps a different category in this subject. When Jesus talks about um, eunuchs in this, in this chapter in Matthew 19, I believe part of what he's covering are those born intersex and perhaps to some more compassionate degree, those with gender dysphoria. He says some are born eunuchs, some are made eunuchs, and some in a metaphoric sense because they have chosen in their own selves for the sake of the kingdom of God to remain single or have, are acting as if they are eunuchs. A eunuch was someone who had their genitals removed and were living a, were, were living a, um, as if they were intersex themselves. Varying reasons, I'm not going to go into the historical reasons or the perspectives of why it happened. Jesus was just affirming these things are realities in our world. In other words, this subject wasn't entirely new. It's not a, a, a 21st century issue. It's not a 2022 moment. There are some things that have been going on from the beginning of time, and Jesus is recognizing those things. And I think how Jesus uh, refer, affirms some things are really important. Here's the last thing that Jesus affirms in this text, and that's this. He affirms that there are two kingdom options within God's kingdom. Marriage between one man and one woman in whole life commitment and covenant, or celibacy. Celibacy. non Sexual activity of any kind. These are the two options that Jesus is presenting are ways that the human person can flourish in the kingdom of God in this area of their life. These are the two options. Marriage and celibacy. Both of them require that we die to our selfish desires in some way. You might be sitting there thinking, there's no way marriage makes you die to yourself selfishly. You haven't been married long enough. Absolutely does. But celibacy, on the other hand, is the same way. I wanna, I'm going to talk more about this next week, but I'm just going to make this statement, and then I'm going to move on. Being married and having children is not the pinnacle of Christianity. You are not closer to God simply because you are married. You don't have a more flourishing life in the kingdom of God because you're married. Being a single celibate individual following Jesus is fully a life that he flourishes and blesses. That's great news for those who are single, those who are find themselves single again, those who are struggling with same-sex attraction, or for those who have experienced a widowing and they have lost their life companion. There is a flourishing life in the kingdom of God available to you. I love how Isaiah 56 and verse 3 through 5 says it. It says, it says, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, say, surely the Lord separated me from the people. In other words, I'm so different because I'm not married and I'm not having kids. Well, surely let not, not say that the Lord has separated me. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. 
For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keeps my Sabbath, who choose the things that pleases me and holds fast to my covenant. I will give in my house. Um, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Isaiah is pronouncing blessing that in the kingdom of God, when Messiah comes, that in this new covenant, that all who want to follow the ways of Jesus can follow the ways of Jesus and experience the life everlasting, a flourishing life, whether you are married with kids, married and unable to have kids, single for life, you, have, you, were, you were married once but found yourself single again for one reason or another, or you find yourself in a place where there's a, a, an attraction or an incongruence. When you choose to follow the ways of Jesus, he will give you a name that is different. He will give you a name that is blessed and that matters because a name represents an identity. And much of this subject on gender itself is around identity. Who am I? And Jesus says, if you'll come to me, my father will begin to speak the identity over you that you've never understood or known before. And that's really good news for the family of God. Friends, Jesus came pronouncing the kingdom and a new way to be human. He redeemed us so that we could be renewed. We cannot experience a renewal of life. This renewal of life was a precursor to eternal life and the life in the world to come until we have received his redemption. And repentance is what leads us to redemptions, which allows renewal to occur. And that's what I long for as a pastor. To help people, regardless of their afflictions, regardless of the incongruence, regardless of even the trauma that has caused them to think a certain way or whatever their story would be. For those who have, have a lifelong recognition that they're just single and they've been single a long time. That God wants to come and bring redemption and healing and wholeness into all of our lives. And we can follow Jesus and grow in his family as he changes all of our identities into his image and stature and nature and fullness there. And that's my desire and my hope today. Is that this is an open conversation of invitation to come and explore and learn and ask questions and let's get to the text and figure it out. But at the end of the day, let's let Jesus be Lord over it all, including our identities and our sexuality as it would play out in those ways. Amen? Amen. Ready? Whew. All right, everybody take a deep breath. Uh, all right, Pastor. You said a lot of words. <clears throat> I'm going to ask kind of a simple question. Okay. There may not be a simple answer, but <laughs> so the question <clears throat> is, is homosexuality a sin? And I guess kind of tied to that a little bit, this is probably the more complex part of the answer is, are people born mm. that way? Are they born attracted to the same sex? Yeah, it's, it's a super important question. Uh, let me give you some scientific research and then give you some scriptural thoughts. Can I do that? 
Uh, good, I'm going to anyways. Uh, there was a study produced in 2019 uh, that covers over half a million people. And the findings were published on science.org. And I actually found a summary of it in, again um, in, on, on a PBS website, news site. And it says, I'm just going to read you a quick quote out of the introductory line. It says, the study of nearly half a million people closes the door on the debate around the existence of so-called gay gene, quote unquote. In its stead, the report finds that the human DNA cannot predict who is gay or heterosexual. Sexuality can be pinned down, can, cannot be pinned down by biology, psychology, or life experience. This study and others showed that because human sexual attraction is decided by all of these factors, not just one of these factors. In other words, that by and large, this subject or those who walk or experience this, it's more of an issue of nurture than innate nature. Um, so I think that's an important thing. Now, any of these questions and any of this conversation, I, I need to add one more disclaimer. And I may have said it before, but I've said a lot of words and I feel like it's really important. The truth is not meant to be a bully pulpit for any of us. The more understanding we have, the more compassion we should have. And that's exactly our heart in this way. But I do want to be as clear as I can so there's not confusion. Is that all right? I do think that, uh, obviously, we already talked a little bit about gender dysphoria, this psychological reality for some people. We've talked about intersex, which... In that way, it's easy to have this inner tension, and there's a very few, very, very few that have some chromosomal realities in that way. And it is really hard to disassociate the psychological and emotional reality that we're experiencing from uh, a desire, because when we start talking about desires, we're like, well, this is who I am. And it, again, it's linked to this sense of identity and belonging. So it's really hard to extrapolate these these things. When we talk about sin, I need you to understand something. Sin, all sin comes from one thing, unbelief. Sin suffocates the life of God that was meant to flourish in your life. When we act in a way that is inconsistent with the ways of Jesus, it severs and begins to stifen the relational flow of our connection with God. So sin is anything that begins to separate us relationally from God. Relationship with God is what will cause life and flourishing in your life. Are we tracking? James chapter 1 says it like this. Temptation is from our own desires which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to, don't miss this, sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow or continue in our lives, we continually sever, our, we, 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 we short cycle, we, we, we begin to stifle and, 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 and suffocate our relationship with God and our connection with God. Sin does this. And the longer it's allowed to grow, it eventually gives birth to death. Where something dies, something is no longer alive. In us, our relationship with God becomes dormant. So, the very source of our life that brings human flourishing, we have severed and suffocated away. That's what prolonged sin does. But I want you to see very, very clearly please hear me, please hear me. 
It's not the desire that is the sin. It's the desire that is unchecked, unfiltered, and not redirected that leads us to act that is sin. Attraction is not the sin. Acting on the attraction is what hinders the life and flourishing of God. The way the enemy wants to work is he tells us lies that play to our disordered desires already within us and then are normalized in a sinful society. This is how the enemy operates in our lives and gets us off track. Desires that are disordered or not in alignment with God. In other words, in the beginning, God created everything. It was wonderful and good and beautiful. God created a good, wholesome world. People were individual. Their identity was wrapped in him. But they made a decision to rebel and choose knowledge of good and evil on their own terms. To define things in their own way, their own emotional state, how they wanted. They did it in their own terms. They said, not God's way, but my way. I want to grow in my own knowledge and information. And in that moment, sin enter the world and as a result every person is born into a world marred by sin and sin has a way of suffocating and and ripping apart God's good world from the very beginning when sin showed up it started to rip apart and fracture the goodness of God that was intended by God and it began to create destruction all around we are all born into that reality and when we experience things that are hurtful and harmful The enemy is there to try to tell us lies on how we should interpret what that means. And most of those lies have to do with our identity and who we are. He tries to get us to think a certain way, act a certain way, and we create vows and oaths based on those experiences trying to prevent us in some way. And those oaths and those vows create something that when we then look around in our world and see sinfulness play out and it's disordered, we're like, okay, that's good. That's what that looks like. I didn't share this in the first service. I'm going to share it here because um, I think it's going to help add some validity to that statement because what what I don't want you to hear is like people who are struggling with same-sex things, people who are struggling with gender identity and bending and those sorts of things that they're just being lied to. It's so much more broad than that. It's so much more rooted psychologically and emotionally than that. But that is at its core how that is nurtured in their environment. There were two experiences in my life growing up that could be classified as sexual abuse. It occurred by men or or other guys, unwanted, undesired on my end. After those events and periodically through my life, there were many times I remember the enemy trying to whisper how I should interpret those events and what that meant for my identity and my sexuality. Thankfully, I was in an environment that was nurturing the right kind of identity and who I was in Jesus, that those things did not take root and I recognized them as lies had I not recognized them as lies. Are are we tracking? Guys, I'm not making this stuff up. The enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy our lives, and he's coming for this area of our life too.
I think it's um, I think it's so important to understand that area of of nurture because it's easy to if everybody else around it is doing it then it must be okay and I think that's part of I appreciate you taking the time to kind of talk about and why we're talking about this is because it's outside of here or outside of your bubble it's almost you can't have a conversation about this because it's one people don't fully understand and two people don't have patience <laughs> to to really get to know and have a conversation. And, so, and it's really important to, it's not one size fits all. Every story has nuance, but every story represents a human that matters to God. But we do need to understand some, some of the nuances of these things. Right. So speaking of social influence, um, some of you might have heard of this thing, social media, um, and you might participate in some degree or level. Um, so the question kind of has to do with this. We have um, a number of 60-second theologians giving us their take on why uh, actual homosexual wasn't even added to the Bible until 1946. So because of that, they say this, this was accepted and this was part of an agenda. So uh, That's not correct in the sense of that that's not what the Bible was saying. There is a difference between what the Bible says and what the Bible means. In our culture today, people aren't arguing with what the Bible says. They're arguing with what they say the Bible means. And where they're coming from, uh, there are two kind of camps. There's kind of the Orthodox Christian viewpoint that's talking on the subject. That's kind of where I'm coming from and where I've landed. And then there is those that would call themselves progressive Christians, and they're kind of a little bit more open and accepting and affirming, and they're even saying that... Um, it's okay to act in this way and follow Jesus and, um, and all that that entails. So there's a little bit of, of, uh, of demonstration. When you get to the original text, I'm just going to jump to the two uh, main ones. Can I do it? Let me read you some scripture. 1 Corinthians 6 and 9, it says, Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the, um, nor the homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In the Greek, there are two words in this text. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolatrous, nor the malakoi, and arsenokai, arson, arsenkoitai, let me say it that way. I'm not Greek or Hebrew, but I'm getting my best Greeky with it. Uh, that's what those words are. In 1 Timothy 1.9, there's another one that says, For the sexually immoral, for the arson a kotai, again, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, nor anything else that is contrary to the sound doctrine. They're saying that those two words were mistranslated in English into homosexuality, but they should have been uh, translated as something else. That's just not accurate. Um, the word malakoi, M-A-L-A-K-O-I is the word which means soft or delicate. It's used other places in scripture in the Greek. And it's uh, in, uh, it really refers to um, men, women who desire to wholly change their condition of that of, of women. In other words, it's learning to play a role that you weren't intended to play. Being the effeminate receptive end of an act. That's as PG as I'm going to make it. Um, and there are some, though, that would argue and say that's soft, delicate, because there are times where that same Greek word is used to describe clothing, soft clothing. Well, when uh, context clues, when we learn to read, you learn to read context clues to understand what a word is and what a word means, right? Uh, 
it's highly unlikely that uh, Paul would write and he would say, neither the sexually immoral, nor the adulterers, nor those who like to wear soft clothing. In other words, if you like wearing hoodies, you don't get the kingdom of God. I don't think that's, and I know that's not what he was saying. It's a word used in other ways in other Greek and Roman literature. And we have examples all through ancient Greek and ancient Roman literature in the ancient Near East, um, ancient antiquity, uh, in those writings that articulate all types of relationships of the same sex orientation and cross-dressing and transgenderism and all of those things are represented in those and those things the last word is the word arsenokoitai it's a compound word it's two words that he put into one word and it's the only time this word is a compound word in all of scripture so it's a hotly debated as to why he did it it would be like if i said going to church just gives me such life being around the people of god and then later I would write and I would say, being with the people of God is so life-giving. Do those things mean the same? Same words, life and giving, and I've turned them into a compound word. The meaning is pretty clear, right? Okay, I'm, I'm seeing like I'm not making, this isn't making sense. It's two Greek words. It's a compound word, arson and koitai. This word koite or koitai is where we would get another word coitus. Arson means male. Two separate words, put into compound words, and that's what we're seeing him articulate. Now, often Paul will use Greek words from the Greek Septuagint in his writings. Jesus would go back to the Septuagint and grab Greek words from the Septuagint and bring them into his conversation. Peter, in writing about Christian holiness and a lifestyle that honors God, would go into the Greek Septuagint and grab those words and bring them in to his writings and his understanding of those things. And both arson and koitai appear right beside each other in another place in Scripture, they're not a compound word, but they're words saying the same thing right next to each other. And it's in Leviticus 18 and 19 where you see homosexuality and those kinds of acts being forbidden in the moral law of God's word. So it's not a mistranslation. It's not a misinterpretation. It really does mean what it says that it means. Uh, this is not a question that we talked about. but Oh, do you, fun. But, <laughs> But as a pastor, do you have access to classified information that, uh, that we don't have access to? <laughs> uh, not necessarily. Uh, I do have certain study resources of material that I'm able to get into. Uh, but this week in the email, you're going to get a load of information and resources that are going to help you see and read and understand some of these exact same things if you would like to dive deeper and understand it more. And the reason I ask that is because I think sometimes it's easy for a 60-second social media clip to challenge everything we believe. And that's part of being a believer is to know what we believe. And if there's something that presents itself differently, that we should, one, pray, ask the Holy Spirit for revelation, right? And then dig in and research. And so, uh, so just kind of to wrap it up, at the end of the day, and I know this is, a, this is a complex conversation, but simply, how should we respond to somebody 
that, um, that sees life, specifically this um, kind of orientation, differently than we do um, within the body or just out, out in the community or at large? How should we as believers approach and have yeah. a yeah. relationship with those people? Um, number one, quit with the what you think are cute phrases to like end the debate of all debates. God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. It's actually not helpful. It's not helpful. It's not kind. Stop being grossed and outraged at things. Nowhere, I've said it before, I'll say it again. Stop expecting people who don't follow Jesus to act like they follow Jesus. They don't have that framework. It is different for people who want to follow Jesus and want to explore. and They maybe have lived certain lifestyles and have certain understandings and dealing psychologically and emotionally with things. And they've had trauma and things in their life. But, man, they, they recognize life isn't working and they want life to flourish. We want life to flourish. We want these things to come about. We want people to experience the flourishing. And people start asking questions and looking for it. We want to be able to walk with them kindly. I don't think we, God calls us to win arguments. Your job in the body of Christ is not to argue people into the kingdom of God. Your job and my job is to live with such allegiance to Jesus that our lives are a different alternative to the cultural norms that are countercultural. that people look and see that person has joy, but they're single. That person has joy and they're married. That person isn't perfect and struggle and make mistakes, but they're accepted and loved. And there are people around them who are helping them grow in these things. That's what it looks like. We need to offer a better version of humanity than what they've been experiencing. We need to be willing to be compassionate and caring before we're convicting and try to have conversations. Jesus often confronted legalistic people. He ate meals with people who were living lawlessly, though. There is a difference. Jesus always provided dignity for individuals, no matter if they disagreed or we're living in a, in a way that would disagree with his Christian ethic. He provided dignity for people first. Think about the woman caught in adultery, slung out in the middle of the street in the act of adultery, making love with somebody that she wasn't married to, in the act of. You can't be committing adultery fully clothed, by, by the way, friends. In the act thrown into the street, what does Jesus do? He kneels down and he starts to write in the sand. We have no idea. People want to argue like, what was he writing? What? I, don't, I don't know what he wrote. I have no idea. I'm more interested in why he started to write. I have just a personal, it wouldn't surprise me if the reason Jesus bent down to write was so that they would pay attention to what he was writing and stop staring at a half-naked woman in the middle of the street. I think Jesus was clothing her with dignity so that there could be a discussion that was had. Once the discussion was had and they all left, Jesus looks at her and he says, woman, there, and I think he made good eye contact, by the way. Made eye contact and lovingly looked at her and says, woman, where are the people who are accusing you? Who's condemning you right now? She's like, no one, Lord. And he says, okay. Okay. 
Go and sin no more. In other words, go and leave your life of sin and live in a different way. He provided truth, but it came after he covered her in dignity. If somebody was transgender and they would maybe even had sex reassignment surgery and they introduced themselves to me under a certain name, I'm going to use that name in conversation with them. Why? Because I'm just going to clothe them with dignity. You ask me what my name is, I'm going to tell you Matthew. And then you immediately call me Matt. Obviously, you missed the conversation. It's, right? Same thing. Same thing. Pastor, would you ever go to a wedding of a couple, same-sex couple getting married? Here's my response. Number one, if I had good enough relationship to, number one, even be invited, that means that we've had a lot of clear conversations ahead of time. And they know exactly where I stand and exactly where they stand. And the relationship has some clear understanding already. But they, I would also have a clear conversation with them that I believe in such importance of the covenant being made in marriage that I would not show up to the ceremony because being in the room, I am affirming and sealing and a witness to that covenant being made. And I, I cannot do that with good conscience. But I absolutely would show up for the after party with a present. Why? Because I think Jesus likes going to parties. <laughs> There's a difference. Galatians 6, 1 through 2 says this. Brothers, if anyone is caught in sin or caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Somebody say gentleness. Keep watch, though, over yourselves that you don't fall into sin and be tempted to. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. There ought not be anything in our lives that we don't want to reveal to God or reveal to the people of God that they could then bear our burdens with us and help find restoration in their lives. That's the kind of pastor, that's the kind of person, and that's the kind of church I want us to be. That when people want to follow Jesus, we help get them out of those transgressions and we walk with them in the afflictions that they're in. We walk with them in the burdens that they're carrying. We walk with them as they get over bitterness, as they get over anger, as they get over the divorce, as they get over the death of a loved one, as they get over same-sex attraction, as they deal with the incongruences in their own gender understanding. Wherever they're at, if they want to follow Jesus, we follow Jesus with them holding them with them, believing in them, supporting them, praying for them, caring for them, getting to know them. And we find restoration and redemption in people's lives because we're willing to be present and helping them find Jesus. But make no mistake, in our caring for one another and lifting their burdens, that doesn't change the truth or the strength of the standard of what God's word teaches. We don't lower the standard of what God teaches in an act and calling it love. We hold to the standard and we encourage each other to keep reaching the standard. So when we have people who keep gossiping, 
We let them know, hey, listen, you're a gossip and you need to stop and let's go to the standard of what Jesus holds. Oh, you're same-sex attracted? It's, it, I get it. I have attractions that I want to act out on all the time, but I don't act on those attractions. You can hold that. We can find freedom and wholeness and forgiveness and life, right? We're going to move in the direction. Oh, you're struggling with an addiction? Hey, I get it. Addiction comes for us. Sometimes it's chemicals. Sometimes they're genetically disposed to something. Sometimes we just have addictive tendencies in our lives. You know what? The blood of Jesus is enough. God is enough. We're going to allow our identity to be shaped by Christ. Let's walk this out together. There's hope. There's healing. There's restoration. There's the comfort of Jesus. Let's have conversations. Let's learn. Let's grow. But let's not lower the standard of truth and let's not lower the standard of what Christian compassion is supposed to look like. Amen? Let's stand together. Let's pray. Jesus, there's so much to subjects like this. Lord, we, we can't pretend to know it all or understand it all, but Lord, I've done my best today to articulate not only a heart and a compassion, but a conviction of truth of your word. Lord, I pray that where there would maybe be shame or guilt or remorse or even anger or angst, God, that there would just be a sense of your calmingness in our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would help us as followers of Jesus just walk faithfully. Where we struggle, God, may your spirit come alongside of us and give us the strength to endure and move on. Where those, of, where those in our family or that we would come to know deal with an affliction of some kind, God, would you help us pray for them as they suffer for the kingdom of God? God, for those who are still confused and wondering and questions and all the things, God, would you, would you just draw us closer to you and help us see and know you and as we wrestle and talk it out and live life together and try to honor you? Lord, I pray for my family today that you would bless them and keep them. You'd make your face shine on them and be gracious to them. Would you lift your countenance towards us and give us your peace? We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Hey, friends and family, I hope today's message was life-giving for you. I want to ask you to take a next step and go ahead and click the subscribe button so you never miss another chance to have an encounter with God. And while you're at it, take another step and share it with a friend. Maybe post it on your social network or text a coworker the link. And when you do that, you are partnering and get to be a part of seeing faith come to life in them. Hey, if Faith Church has made an impact in your life, if these messages are helping you gain traction in your faith, would you consider partnering with us financially? When you do that, it helps us widen our reach so that more people can have an encounter with the real Jesus. You can find information and ways to give on our central hub, faithchurchks.org. If, if you live in the Southeast Kansas region, we'd love to see it in person at one of our Sunday services. You can find those times on our hub as well, faithchurchks.org. Hey, remember this, God is for you and we love you.